0: From 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received on and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed down to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers at the same time. Most of whom who are still living, though others have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all of the apostles... And at last of all, he appeared to me also as a one abnormally born. For I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning, everyone. Very good to see you. Nice to have you out here at the Wooden Christian Camp, Uh, and thank you to Daniel and John who did those interviews. It's one of my favourite parts of camp, having people up the front here that uh, we don't always get to hear from and um, to hear how the Lord's been at work in their life. One of the questions that Lee asked, uh, John I think it was, was the three people that you'd like to go to. I want to share an experience I had, um, who you'd like to go for a meal with. We run the um, Equip Conference every year, and I've been doing it for many, many, many years, and... um, At the beginning of each day, we like to give some icebreaker questions to our group, just to get the brain going, to get people speaking publicly, that kind of thing. And one of the questions I've used over the years is, name three people you'd like to go for a meal with. And it becomes fairly formulaic. You kind of know who most people are going to say, because they will say something like, if they're interested in sport, they'll say Michael Jordan, or uh, if there's a, a family member who's passed away, who they miss, they'll say my grandmother who's no longer around. Some of the more holy ones will go for church leaders of the past and that kind of thing. We had a lovely Malaysian lady in our group this year, and you know how there are just some people who their spirit is just lovely. She was just a gracious, uh, godly woman, uh, quietly quietly spoken, uh, nice sense of humour. I asked that question, and I've never been more surprised in my life, because almost as quick as a flash, she said, Adolf Hitler, Ted Bundy, and Billy Graham. I'd like to see how good Billy Graham really was. (laughs) I was not expecting that answer. Even though she gave that answer, I still can't quite believe that answer. Uh, It was just so unexpected from that person in particular. Uh, I would like to publicly, before I do anything else, um, and I'll get this on the record because I only saw this last night when I arrived at camp, but I would like to publicly uh, nominate whoever wrote my bio... Whoever wrote my bio, I'd like to nominate them for one of those zero awards or chump awards. Or It says here, Jay likes long walks on the beach, getting jiggy with it on his cross trainer. I can assure everyone here I've never got jiggy with it in my life. But then then they fell into a trap because then they said, Jay is also a pro whistler. And what was probably done as a joke has suddenly hit a nerve because this is deeply personal for me. Now, I don't know whether this person meant this or not, but I can't whistle properly. And I can't whistle properly because of my father, because he was a neglectful parent. My dad's not here, is he? No, he's not, so I can say this however I want. (laughs) When I was about one or two, uh, my dad, we we didn't have laundry at home, so my dad was taking uh, the laundry laundry to the laundromat, and he placed the laundry basket on top of a a washing machine, and he placed me on top of the laundry basket, which was on top of the... Wa- I fell off. And I landed with my teeth between my over my lips, put my teeth right through my lips, and foolishly, as if that wasn't enough, my dad then took me to the hospital to get it stitched up. He should have left it. Let, let he, uh, lips heal. They heal really well. But I got it stitched, so I've got a permanent fat lip, which means when I whistle, I whistle out one side. My dad has laughed at me for my whole life. And he caused it. And I was all right about it until I read this. Jay is also a pro whistler. Shame on you, whoever wrote that. Shame on you. Maybe it was a typo was supposed to be pro wrestler. Oh, that would have been okay, yeah. No, sorry. Right, let's pray. I think we've got about 20 minutes for the session left. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's such a privilege to be on camp. It's such a joy to be with brothers and sisters in Christ from our church family. And I pray that you would use these sessions to really build us up in you. For those of us who are here that uh, may yet not yet have made a decision to follow you, please prompt us over this weekend so that we may put our trust fully in the Lord Jesus and live for him. For those of us who are going through really difficult times at the moment, encourage our hearts, remind us who you are, equip us, strengthen us as we return back to lives after, our normal lives after this camp. And Father, for those of us who have just come along not really knowing what to expect, I pray that you would deepen our love for you, that you would strengthen our resolve to serve you in our lives. Please be at work by your spirit within us and amongst us over the course of this weekend. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this series uh, for camp has come about in two ways, really. Firstly, towards the end of last year, uh, a number of us had a hui, and the hui was with representatives of the churches who've either left the Anglican Church or were seriously considering leaving the Anglican Church. Uh, if, I see, if I say ACA Z P, do people know what that means? ACA Z P, what does it mean? Anglican Church in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Polynesia. That's our fancy acronym. That's A-C-A-N-Z-P. That's the existing Anglican structure. And it's too long to say the Anglican Church of Aotearoa, New Zealand. So I'm just going to say A-C-A-N-Z-P. So if I say that, you know what I mean. So this was a hui for uh, representatives of all the churches who were going to be leaving or were very seriously considering leaving the Anglican denomination. And we were gathering to talk about the new Anglican expression the new Anglican church or the new Anglican denomination or diocese, whichever one language you want to talk about, the new Anglican structure that we're going to set up and build. And it's not easy. There's a reason people don't start new denominations every day. It's hard. It's big. There's a lot to discuss and debate and decide upon. What beliefs are we going to make non-negotiable and which beliefs will we allow to be flexible? What practices do we lock in and they must be done a certain way because they've got certain meanings and which do you give maximum freedom over? You've got to consider all these sorts of things. But there's real benefit in doing it. There's real benefit taking a step back and thinking about the life of a Christian, the life of a church, and working it out by prayer. Because often we don't do that with church life. Often we just do what we've always done. How do you learn what church should be and how it should operate and the things it should focus on and the way it should do things? Often we do it by osmosis. That's how it happened when I was a child. That's what we used to do at my old church. And and we don't actually think by first principles what we do. We do it kind of subconsciously. And every now and then there's real value in stopping and thinking about who are we as Christians, as the people of God? What defines us? What are the core issues, the non-negotiables, the heart of who we are and what we should do? Often one of the problems churches get into are we're flexible on what we should be inflexible on and we're inflexible on what we should be flexible on. But what are those things? And that becomes doubly important to, to step back and think about the big picture principles when you're setting up a new structure or denomination because you inevitably get caught up in the small things when you're doing that. You're, writing, you're coming up with a constitution. You're writing church laws. We call church laws canons because canon sounds more interesting than church laws. But you're, you're doing the details and you can forget the big picture. You can miss the wood for the trees. And so we, we, we wanted to be clear at this hui on what's at the heart of who we are as Christians and the church structure we want to be part of. We need a firm foundation to build upon. And and this is good for all Christians, to be clear at what's at the heart of who we are, the centre that everything else flows out of. What are the essentials? And with that in mind, at this hui, uh, I was asked to give a talk on just that, a talk on what the main priorities of this new structure or denomination should be, what the unchanging principles at the heart of the new movement should be. And I came up with six... And we changed it later to seven. And the six were, write these down because these are going to be important over the course of the weekend. The six were, one, an authoritative Bible. If you don't know how to spell authoritative, tough, learn. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) I think it's author and then itative. (laughs) Authoritative Bible. Two, Christ and the cross. Christ and the cross. Three, a. Christ and the cross. Three, evangelism is essential, or essential evangelism. Four, deliberate discipleship. Five, keep up. Five, robust relationships, because we care about each other. I'll go back to three. Evangelism is essential. Four, deliberate discipleship. Five, robust relationships. And six, authentically Anglican. The one that became number seven was persistent prayer. And I'd kind of said prayer overcovers all those six, but then we thought you need the number seven, so we put persistent prayer as number seven, and uh, there we go. And we said that we want the Constitution and the canons and the laws, we'll come back to those seven if you didn't get them all, we want that to flow out of these seven principles, these seven foundational truths. If they don't flow out of these, then we don't want them. We certainly don't need them. So that was the first bit of context as to how this series came about. The second one was, there's still some people trying to work out the seven, let me give you them again, authoritative Bible, Christ on the cross, essential evangelism, deliberate discipleship, robust relationships, authentically Anglican, persistent prayer. The second bit of context as to how the series came about was that uh, Dave Clancy asked me to um, do a series at their church camp, Trinity Church Camp, in March, picking up on these principles. Could we talk through them and what they are and what they mean and that sort of thing. He wanted four talks for that camp. And uh, he suggested going with the relationships that every Christian has in their life. So the relationship, I've written it here, I hope you can see it, the relationship with God that we have in Christ, The relationship with other Christians we have, which is really the church, the local church, the relationship with other Christians. The relationship each church has with other churches, which is really a denomination or a structure. And the relationship with the world. And under each of them, so we we kind of talked about that, Dave and I, and we decided that under each of those four relationships we would think about one or more of the seven principles. And so I've put the initials there of the principles that we're going to be looking at under each of the headings. So under relationship with God and Christ, we've got AB, which is authoritative Bible. And CC, which is Christ and the cross. Under relationship with other Christians, we're going to be thinking about deliberate discipleship. Under relationship with other churches, we're going to be reflecting on authentically Anglican and robust relationships. And under relationship with the world, we're going to think about essential evangelism and persistent prayer. Now, the tricky thing for us is we've only got three talks at this camp. Apparently Trinity Church is more holy than we are. They have four talks on their camps. We only have three. Uh, So we're just going to look at the first three. Two today, one tomorrow. But next week at church, when we're back at Shirley Intermediate, we'll be doing the fourth one. So I hope you can see right from the outset, and I don't want to pretend that this is anything different than this. This is a back-to-basics series. I hope you haven't come along thinking we're going to hear something very new, very novel. No, not at all. This is going right back. I'd be surprised if anyone here heard anything new to them this weekend. But that's what most of the Christian life is. It's remembering the old truths, the unchanging truths, the truths that we forget over time and as we meet different obstacles in our life. And one of the most important things in the Christian walk is to keep remembering those unchanging truths. And I'm going to be speaking a little bit differently than normal, but I'm not preaching through passages so much as giving general talks. Uh, so I hope that will be uh, okay. Uh, One other thing to mention before we get into our topic for this first session is, under each of the seven principles, the little uh, AA or AB or whatever it is uh, there, I may sometimes say things on those particular topics where we had gone wrong in ACANZP, mistakes that had crept in or errors or problems um, so in a moment we're going to speak about authoritative Bible and I may point out some mistakes that I think we would made as ACANZP. I want to point this out at the beginning because I'm not doing this to be rude. I'm not doing this to have a slap at the denomination we've just left. I hope people here know me better than to think that I would, I would do that. What I'm doing it for is so that we may genuinely learn from past errors. Only a fool doesn't learn from the mistakes of history. And sometimes it will be very good for us to see where we've gone wrong so that we try and start off on as firm a foundation as possible. So if I, if I point out some errors in that way, it's not me trying to say we're, we're better than them or slap them because we've left or anything like that. It's us trying to learn from the mistakes uh, we've gone through. If you feel I've done that in an unhelpful or a rude way, please pull me aside and uh, chat to me about it. And unless you're the person who wrote Jay's a Professional Whistler, I'll listen to you. Now, I hope that makes sense and gives a feel of what we'll be doing over the uh, the weekend. So let's move on to topic one, relationship with God and Christ. Here's Here's the primary relationship that we were created for, that all human beings were made for, but not, sadly, all human beings have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And we've got the two principles, authoritative Bible and Christ and the cross. Now, I've said I'm not going to be um, preaching right the way through all the readings and that sort of thing like I would normally do. But just start reading that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, that Rebecca Rebecca read to us a few moments ago. This is Paul writing, and he writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. Now, those words straight away should get us alert. And thinking. This is very important because we're about to hear the gospel that Paul preached, the gospel that converted so much of the world. This is Paul, the main missionary, the best missionary in the history of the world. This is Paul that turned the the history of the world upside down, and he's about to go into his gospel. Remember when Paul first became a Christian on the road to um, Damascus? God spoke to Ananias and said, Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. This is the main missionary of God, and here he's about to speak about his, um, his gospel. The gospel that people were converted by and which was preached to the nations. So have a look, verse 2, by this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you believe in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. So here it is. Here's Paul's gospel. What does he say? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the twelve. This is the gospel that changed the history of the world. That Christ died for our sins. The gospel of Paul, which is the gospel of God, read Galatians 1 and 2, is Jesus. And in particular, Jesus crucified. In particular, Jesus crucified and risen. That's the heart of his gospel that he preached and that converted people. Now we'll get to Jesus in a moment, but before we do, twice in those verses do you see Paul says the phrase, according to the scriptures. He can't talk about the gospel without going according to the scriptures, which brings us to an authoritative Bible, an authoritative Bible. We're going to spend most of our time on this one, not because it's the most important one, because it's the one that we've slipped away from the most. To have a relationship with God, we need the gospel that comes to us primarily in the scriptures. For Christians, the Bible has always been the word of God. It's not just a a kind of name we give it. That's the description of what it is. That this is God's word. In other words, it's the final authority on all matters of faith and conduct. And when I say that, it's easy to gloss over it. It's easy to miss the point of it. But I want you to hear what I'm saying here. This is the final authority on all matters of faith and conduct. If you don't know what to believe, this is where you find it. If you hear different opinions and different thoughts this is where you'll find the definitive. If you want to know how to live and how to, what to do or not to do, this is the final authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 is an important text, and just because it's been sometimes misused as a proof text doesn't take away the significance of it here. Some of you will know 2 Timothy 3.16 off the top of your head, where Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, people sometimes take from that, oh, well, the Bible's inspired. God inspired the Bible. He kind of inspired the human authors. And then they wrote, Paul and uh, Moses and Peter, and they wrote inspired words uh, on there. But notice, it doesn't say that the authors of the Bible were inspired like um, Beethoven was inspired when he wrote the Ninth Symphony. Or um Da Vinci was inspired when he painted the Mona Lisa. No, all scripture is God breathed. The word there actually isn't inspired, inspirate, it's expired, it's breathed out. And it's the words of Scripture, not just the human authors, the words of Scripture, the Bible says about itself, are breathed out by God. Literally it's saying the words of scripture are breathed out by God. And I haven't got time this morning, certainly not now, to, to go through all the different parts in the Bible where it talks about this, uh, about the Bible in this way. You read in the New Testament, and sometimes it will quote the Old Testament, where God has spoken and it just says, the Scriptures say. Sometimes it's the, re- the reverse. The Scriptures will say, or David will say, and it says, as God has said. So it uses God and Scripture almost interchangeably. Because the consistent witness of the Bible is that it is the very word of God. That he is the ultimate author behind it. That yes, there are 66 different books in the Bible written by different human authors at different places and different times. But as J.I. Packer says, the Bible is also one story with one author, God himself. Who used those human authors to say the words and truths that he wanted to get across. The Bible is God's word, all of it. Not just parts of it. You and I live in an age today where um, the the age of the red letter Bible, where the words of Jesus are sometimes put in red. Nothing wrong with that. I don't care what colour ink you use in your your Bibles. But I do care if people think that somehow the words of Jesus, the words in red, are more God's word than the rest of the words around them. Because they're not. All the scriptures are God-breathed. They're all the word of God in that sense. The words that Jesus spoke are no more God's word than the words that Peter has written for us in his epistles. Uh, The Anglican church has always recognized that. It's been within our constitution, within our formularies, within our practice. We have a Bible reading, and often uh, it will be said, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, the Bible's been read, but we say, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church because God's speaking. What did we say today? We said something slightly different. This is the word of the Lord, we said. Another good one. Another Anglican one. It's very there. Tragically, ACANZP has moved away from that more and more. It's moved away. It listens now to the voice of culture, to the voice of the world, to the voice of experience, to the voice of personal preference. And all these things in the end trump the Bible. Now, they wouldn't say it like that, but that's what we've done. And that was one of the most important of the issues that uh, caused us to make the decision that we did. Now, what they will say when they do that is to say, look, the Bible's important. No one, ever, no, no one in the Christian church ever says the Bible's not important. But what they will say is there are other sources of authority and information which are just as important, which we also have to, to listen. Now, I, I, want to, I want to say this because I think it's worth saying. If the Bible is God's word, it's the ultimate authority in faith and conduct. Above current opinion, above personal preference, above government legislation, above everything else, the Bible is number one in terms of authority. But in Anglican circles, we talk about it being one of a number. Uh, It's become very, it's one source of authority alongside others, and we use all of them. Uh, It's very popular in Anglican circles to talk about the three-legged stool analogy. Hands up if you've heard of the three-legged stool analogy. So a a lot of people. The three-legged stool analogy basically says we've got three main sources of knowledge of God and they are our authority when we come to work out who God is and how we should live. And God's given us these three and we use all of them. And the three are B for Bible, uh, T for Tradition. Tradition is uh, what the church has taught and practiced right down through the ages. So tradition. And the third one is, are for reason. Our minds. And so God reveals himself to us in our minds through church tradition and in the Bible. And we use each of those three legs. I look like I'm milking a cow. I don't mean to. the three legs of a stool. We use each of them interchangeably. To work out who God is. and how. Now I think today, that the three-legged stool's out of date. I think you now need a four-legged chair. I think there's another, a fourth, yes, a fourth one that we've got to add in. But let me, um, can we take that off for a moment, Miriam, and I'll, I'll write a couple of things on. Uh, I think there's four now that people use. And it's worth knowing this because this is how people are thinking. I'm going to give you the acronym BRET. B R E T. Try and think of the most famous Brett you've ever heard. Who's the most famous Brett around? Brett from Fly to the Concords. Could, yep. Brett Hart, professional wrestling. Good. Brett Michaels, the singer from Poison. Every rose has a thorn. Uh, could be any Brett that you want. Think about those four. Uh, the belief is uh, let's do B for Bible first. The thinking behind B for Bible is... Can you write that down, actually? I'm going to do four corners. So just do a little dot and then write B. Yes, you can have a pen. Uh, B for Bible. Don't do a line. Don't do any lines. Just dots. Yes, you're sacked. Does anyone else can... (laughs) So B for Bible. The thinking here is that God has given us his word. And when we want to know who he is and how to live, we look at the Bible. It's just what I've been outlining before. B for Bible. The second one is R. Can we have R over here? R for reason. And the thinking here is that God has created every human being in his image. And he's made us people with faculties, with thoughts and minds. We can think and work things out. We can understand and comprehend. And he's created us that way so that we can know him. So that we can think about him and understand him. And recognize what we should do and all those sorts of things. So that's R for reason. The third is T for tradition. So what this is saying is that down through the ages, God always works through his people. Right back at the beginning, he worked through Abraham and his family. Then he worked through Israel as a nation. Then he worked through the disciples and the apostles. Since then, he's worked through churches, through different synods and councils and ministers and popes and all these sorts of things. So as he's worked down through the ages, we learn from that. So T for tradition. Then lastly, here's the extra leg, because I think it now needs to be a four-legged chair, uh, E for experience. What E for experience means is that, that God is the creator, but he's still at work in the world today. He's still at work in the lives of you and I. He's still doing things, and he works in us to reveal himself. He nudges us and leads us. He guides us. Some people uh, receive visions. Some get prompted. or And through these experiences in a person's life, we come to know God and what he's like and what he wants from us. So E for experience. And sometimes people attribute certain groupings within um, Christianity to focus on one of those. So evangelicals are normally thought to be the B people, the Bible. Uh, liberals are thought to be the reason people, that's their primary one. Uh, charismatics, more the experienced one. And uh, Roman Catholics, the traditionalists, the, the, because they put the Bible and church up next to it. But the important thing to recognize, and I hope this came out as I was explaining it, is there's a high degree of truth in all those four, isn't there? Did anyone violently disagree with anything that I said in those four? There's a lot of, no one stands on just one of those four points. I dare you to come and tell me that you do. Because even if you use the Bible, you've got to use your reasoned mind to understand it. Because the Bible's not a very simple book. You've got to think about it. I don't know anyone, even if they think experience is really important, who doesn't at least look at what other Christians have done down through the ages and think about it. Only a fool would do that. So you can't stand on any of those four just by themselves, which is why the three-legged stool analogy, or the four-legged chair, as I'm changing it to, is popular, because we do use all of them. And so we draw a line round all four, which you kind of jumped to before, Miriam, but we'll do it now, to say that none of us stand solely on one of those we use all of them we all live somewhere within that box if i can put it like that and that helpfully recognizes that god speaks in the bible but he also uses our mind and reason he speaks through the church he works in our lives all those sources are important but do you see a problem with it what if they contradict each other those things what if they fundamentally contradict each other What say someone comes to see me during the week, comes into my office and says, Jay, I don't love my wife anymore, and God's told me to leave her and the kids and move in with Georgia, who I've just met. What do I say? Well, Ray would laugh, but but how do I respond to that? How do I know what God thinks about this? They've raised the stakes. They've already said God's telling them to leave their wife and children and to shack up with Georgia. How do I respond The person's E for experience is God telling them, leave your family and join a new lady. The Bible, B for Bible, is saying, no, don't. So we've got one all at the moment. Tradition says, no, I think it's fair to say, tradition would say no, the church historically frowns on divorce, and even if it occasionally reluctantly allows it, so 2-1. How does reason come down? You could argue both ways, couldn't you? So, it could be three one or it could be two all. What do you do? How do we know God and what He wants, what He expects, what He demands, what He commands, what His preferences are? Is there a casting vote? Or on some issues, do some sources take precedence? Do you see the problem with the three legged stool or the four legged chair? It actually doesn't give confidence, it doesn't give certainty on the same-sex issue that we were wrestling with as a church. All those four were used in different ways. Where does it leave us? It leaves us in murky water. And in fact, what people tend to do is we tend to go with our personal preference and justify the reasons. That's what we tend to do. Well, it's worth, after pointing this out, dispelling some of the nonsense that's said within uh, certain circles at the moment about this. There are some people say that the three-legged stool is part of the heart of Anglicanism. It's right at the root of who we are. It's nonsense. The three-legged stool has never been part of formal Anglican theology. The guy who's credited as coming up with it is is a guy called Richard Hooker, who was a 16th century minister and theologian in the Anglican church, never mentioned the phrase three-legged stool. The only thing he did in one part of his writing was he talked about Bible tradition and reason. And he talked about them being helpful as authority. But he clearly said, I should have brought the quote so I could read it out to you. He clearly said the Bible is number one. In terms of due obedience and respect, Bible is number one. It's not like they're all three equal legs or four equal legs. The Bible is number one. In fact, he ranked the three. Does anyone know the order? It was Bible, then reason, then tradition. So he ranked all three. And that The Bible being number one has always been in our constitution, in our formularies, the 39 articles, saying that the Bible is the word of God. Those other things, please don't mishear me, reason, tradition, experience can be very helpful. God can work through all of them, but always in a subordinate way to the scriptures, to the word of God. In other words, the way to make sense of this diagram is to put a cross in the middle of it. Can we put a cross to break it into four quadrants. Deeply symbolic, that, isn't it? A cross fixes the problem. A cross fixes the problem. Because now what we've got is four grids. And what I'm saying is true Christianity lives and operates only in that top left-hand square. Now, there's a lot of room for manoeuvring in that top left-hand square, depending on your experience and reason and tradition, but there are limitations to it. There is room to manoeuvre and have difference of opinions on issues due to those other factors, but there are also limits to that movement. We can move within the B box due to a combination of R, T, and E, but we must not move out of it. My advice to the guy who comes and says, God's told me to leave his wife and children and check up, no, he didn't. Because the Bible says something completely different. And I'm able to say there with confidence, your experience is wrong. You've crossed out of faithful, orthodox Christianity into uncharted territory. But there are other areas of the Christian life where there will be allowed flexibility. Think about baptism. That's the one illustration I always use. Baptism is not as black and white as we would always like to say. Baptism being good, black and white. Baptism's good. We're told to uh, be baptised. But the way you get baptised or who gets baptised has been the subject of lots of arguing down through the years. There are, should you baptize infants by sprinkling them with water, or should you, like Anglicans do? Or should you only baptize people that are at a certain age and stage so that they can say what they believe on their own behalf and you do it by immersion. Well, here's an issue where the Bible doesn't spell out the mode in black and white. So due to a person's reason as they work out the scriptures, due to a person's tradition, how they've been brought up and experienced, due to their experience, they will probably be somewhere in a different place on that box, but always in that top left-hand box. I always say this one because Jamie and I are different on this issue. Jamie comes from a a Baptist background. I come from a a Christian background. (laughs) If you put, no, don't step away now, Miriam. If you put the, just J right next to B, <laughs> and just put Jamie somewhere right out there, that that's it. But we, but that's fine because the Bible is still a, it's it's just on the border, but it is fine. We, we, but but B is still authority, authoritative Bible. You've got to have it, or else you just end up choosing your own adventure. You just end up making up your own faith and religion. God in his goodness has spoken to us. He's given us his word. Our job is to listen to it. Our job is to trust it above and beyond anything else. Now we need to read it carefully. Thanks, Miriam. We need to understand it thoughtfully, but it must be the final word over popular opinion or the culture around us or personal preference or other competing voices. We need to do that. But the Bible's not an end... of itself. We want the Bible because it gives us Jesus. We want the Bible because through his word we get Jesus and we get a relationship with God. We don't want the Bible because it makes us better educated or because we can understand things better or we're good with memory verses, but because it it gives us Jesus and it shows us the Lord and how to relate to him. In other words, we don't want to be Pharisees with the word of God. Pharisees in the New Testament were the most like us. They elevated the Word of God, but their hearts were far from the Lord. That can't be us. It must bring us to Him. And that brings us to the second heading Christ and the Cross. I'm only going to say one thing here. That's how Paul uses the Scriptures here. According to the Scriptures, but he does it to point people to Jesus and the Cross, to give confidence in Jesus Christ crucified. What's the heart of Christianity? The heart of Christianity is the privilege that you and I have to have a relationship with the God who made us. If you've taken that for granted for a while, shame on you. As I was writing this talk, I thought, I've done that. I've taken it for granted. Shame on us. We can't. We have a relationship with the God who created this universe through his son Jesus, who died as our saviour and rose as our king. We get to know God, that God, not just as creator, his father we get to be not just his creation not not even just his people we get to be his family we are loved we're not put up with we're not grudgingly included we're not able to tag along in Jesus you become a son of God that's who you are you become a daughter of God you and I become heirs with Christ Everything that is God's is ours. We become part of the family. You may not have known much love in your life. If that's you, let me tell you, you're loved by God. Some of the descriptions of the love of God in the scriptures are heartbreaking. and They're so encouraging. He's the one who leaves the 99 sheep to find you because he loves you. He's the one who, even though you're his child who treated him badly and ran off, When you return, he's looking out for you every day and before you can even get back home, he rushes out and embraces you. You are loved by God. And your primary identity, the world at the moment is obsessed by identity. You've got to be your authentic self and all this. Your primary identity is not your gender or your personality or your race or some odd feature about yourself you've been teased about for years or years. Your primary identity is you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're in Christ. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, so often in his letters. I remember the first time I realised, I'd read Paul's letters for a long time, I'd never realised he uses those two words, again and again and again and again and again. In Christ, because it's so important. He doesn't do it because he's got a limited vocab and he wasn't sure what to write. He does it because it's so important. He does it because, who are you? You're in Christ. And that brings All the security and wonder you can imagine. You are forgiven because you're in Christ. You're rescued because you're in Christ. Saved, victorious, relationship with God because you're in Christ. Christ on the cross has won us that. And it's Christ on the cross that, again, ACNZ, I think, has walked away from The cross is not seen in a positive way anymore. We've got to keep the cross at the center. Because it's there that we're in him. The cross shows the depth of God's love for us. It shows us the price he was willing to pay for us. In this world, we often feel like if people really knew us, if they could read my mind or know my heart, then they would never love us. God does know us. He does know your mind and he knows your heart. He knows you better than you even know yourself. And he does not turn his back on you. He loves you and forgives you and saves you and makes you part of the family. He doesn't uh, move one seat over to slowly edge away. He doesn't say, oh, sorry, I didn't realise you were that. And kind of, um, he knows who we are. And while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And unlike others who, when the going gets tough, they get going, the Lord will never abandon us nor forsake us. It's the one relationship that we can count on. You can't count on any other relationship truly because you never know when it could end or be changed. The one with the Lord is the only one we can. Because it depends not on you and me, but on being in Jesus, in Christ. If it was up to me, I'd muck it up. I'm sure I would. But Christ makes sure it's not mucked up. You have a relationship with God because of Christ and the cross. It's the most precious and valuable thing in the world, and yet so many people don't have it. So as we begin this series of talks, we've we've got an authoritative Bible. God's spoken to us. This is the final word. So we don't have to guess who he is or what he wants from us or any of those things. But what he tells us primarily in that world is that we're in Christ. We have a relationship with him. That's the privilege. that's yours and mine. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for our saviour, our king, the one who makes us your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.